Welcome to the Corkscrew podcast on practice research beyond the PhD. This series introduces you to the world of practice-based research both inside and outside academia. Your host is Dr Sophie Hope, a practice-based researcher in the Film, Media and Cultural Studies Department at Birkbeck, University of London. Each episode brings you up close and personal to Sophie and a guest, sharing their experience of working in research conducted through, with and as creative practice. We invite you to listen in to these personal stories and to be inspired. So, hello. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr Lucy Wright. Lucy completed her PhD in 2014 at Manchester Metropolitan University. The title of her PhD is Making Traditions, Practicing Folk, Contemporary Folk Performance in the Northwest of England, a Practice-Led Inquiry. Lucy is now an artist and researcher. So Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Um, to start with, could you cast your mind back and say a little bit about why you wanted to do a PhD in the first place? Hi, it's really nice to be here. Um, why did I want to do a PhD in the first place? I remember really vividly when I kind of decided that there was more to my master's study, I suppose, that I wanted to do you know, I wanted to progress that. And it was late one night in York University Library. I was, I didn't do my master's at York University, but I used to use the library there sometimes because uh, it was nice and quiet in the evenings. And at the time I, I did my master's in ethnomusicology. So I had quite an interesting, weird, mixed background, I think, getting into doing sort of practice research. I didn't go to art school. I've, I've never been to art school and I wish I did, but I didn't. Um, and I was doing ethnomusicology master's degree so ethnomusicology being the study of people performance and place musical performance as a kind of aspect of culture and I started making videos towards the end of it and I think I'd probably always been this kind of uh, frustrated artist you know like I, I come from quite a working class family and although art was something that I was really keen on all the way through school and absolutely loved um, it wasn't something that my parents were very much in support of me pursuing as a degree. You know, I think they wanted me. I was the first person in my family to ever go to university and still the only one, as far as I know, to have been. And um, they wanted me to do you know, do something serious, something sensible, a pro- get a proper job. You know, I think and, and you know, I was at times I'm, I'm really disappointed at, that, that I didn't pursue what I wanted to do in the first place. But actually, I think it really was well-meaning. I think they didn't want me to end up doing the same kind of jobs that, that they had done. And they thought at that time, the message was, if you have a degree, kind of doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's not art, but any kind of proper degree will get you a good job. And it didn't turn out that way. But I, but I, so I took this weird route. I did an art, an art history BA, didn't really enjoy that very much. Um, then went into ethnomusicology because I'd always been involved in music and playing music, folk music particularly. And yeah, I'd been this kind of frustrated artist all the way through and I'd been looking for these excuses to keep on doing something kind of creative, something practical, I suppose, within the study. And so towards the end of my master's, which I did over two years because I was I was working in things as well, um, I'd started making videos and it was this kind of amazing opening up of possibility, I think, for me about academic study. You know, I I was never somebody or at that time, I think I've come into writing a lot more as the years have passed. But at the time, I found writing really, really challenging and also just quite limiting. You know, it just didn't it, it didn't feel like the way I wanted to express myself. And I was very, very passionate about the research I was doing, but there was something missing in the writing that I was asked to do. So I was making these videos. And uh, I remember I was writing my final kind of dissertation piece about this project, this video project I've been doing. Um, and I went to York University Library late one night and sat in the sat up there in, in the 
in the gods, doing some reading and looking through the library, uh, looking through the just the, the shelves about kind of visual anthropology. And I found this book called Visualising Anthropology. Um, and it was by Amanda Rovetz and Anna Grimshaw. And it was incredible because it presented this possibility for using video and other forms of art practice, not just as kind of a tool, not as a kind of illustration of, you know, instead of writing an article, I've, I've made this film that says the same thing, because that was what we were expected to do. You know, as someone who was submitting a video as part of my dissertation, you kind of had to do the work twice. They wouldn't just mark the video in its own right. You also had to write a, a, a an essay, like an exegesis, explaining it. So it ended up being kind of twice as much work as if you'd just written the essay in the first place. But I thought it was worth it, you know, because I just wanted to do it. But this book presented it really differently. And it was kind of acknowledging that that making videos or making art in all kinds of different ways was a form of research in its own right, that it kind of had this internal validity and that you could maybe learn different things through doing practice. And it presents it in such a kind of compelling way as something that already existed. And I kind of went, wow, that's what I want to do. I want my research to be this kind of artistic inquiry. That's what I want to do. And I think because I was quite naive and quite new to it all, I imagine that, that was quite a straightforward thing to do. You know, there would be loads of opportunities, loads of places where that would be happening all the time, you know. And actually, it turned out to be pretty niche, pretty small group of people actually doing that stuff within a university setting. And I remember I contacted Amanda after I'd read the book and kind of because she was working at Manchester Metropolitan and just kind of said, this is amazing what you do. I want to do it too. You know, what are the options? And yeah, and she introduced me to the, the, the possibility of applying for a PhD programme there, which is what I did and managed to get a scholarship, which was fantastic because I, I wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. And yeah, she became my supervisor. So that's kind of why I did a PhD or why I started a PhD. Great. That's great. And then in terms of your experience doing it, what was the practice? How was um, it? What practice were you putting into, putting to use or how did, yeah, what did you do and how did it become research or how did you research yeah. the practice? I don't know how you describe it. It's a really good question because I, I'm not, sure that I've met many other people who took such a kind of backwards route into practice research. I think the majority of people that I've spoken to, and certainly the people who were in the department at the time that I was, um, already had a background in art. You know, they were they were practicing artists and often with with quite some kind of, you know, um, uh, profile already. You know, it was, it was very much established artists who wanted to kind of, you know, formalize or really develop something they were already doing. And I didn't come to it from that. I came to it far more comfortable I guess with the idea of research although again only as a master's student but that was the thing I'd kind of trained in and I didn't have an art practice at all so my PhD was very much a kind of process of trying to develop a practice it was kind of the question was something around you know what would it be to have a practice as an artist to explore questions about music and performance as an aspect of culture you know what would it be like to explore this from the perspective as an artist rather than, I guess, as an ethnographer, which was what I kind of perhaps most identified with. And I remember feeling really uh, conflicted or maybe, maybe even not conflicted, very, very kind of sure that I was never going to be an artist. You know, I was always going to be a researcher who maybe used art sometimes. Um, you know, I, I just couldn't envisage that I could ever catch up with where other people seem to be in terms of practice. 
I think it's one of those things like when you're sort of early 20s or mid 20s that you kind of imagine that if you haven't got your whole life sorted out by that point, then maybe it's all far too late and you'll never learn anything new. And actually, I was totally wrong. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. I, I really felt like I'd missed this important rite of passage in not having gone to art school. So I would never be able to do that. And, and I was going to have to be a researcher. Not that being a researcher is a bad thing you know, at all. And I, and I, I still will. I know we'll talk about that later, but I do still hold the research part of what I do incredibly like closely. I love I love research. Um, but yeah, in terms of so it was, a lot of it was quite experimental. You know, I don't know whether everybody feels this way about their PhD, but I, I feel quite sort of embarrassed by my PhD in terms of it was an incredible opportunity to experiment and play. I think I had this really blessed situation in that it was kind of before there were many people doing practice PhDs. And so I was in a department, I was in a centre for research called Myriad, which was the Manchester Institute for Research and Innovation in Art and Design. And it's since it's very, very sadly been kind of, you know, dismantled and it's become part of a much bigger thing. But at the time, it was this very small group of people kind of interested in these questions around practice research. And it was very free. You know, I was really given a huge amount of, of, of flexibility and freedom to kind of explore things as I wanted to. And uh, I, I was trying to just remember the other day, like, I don't know if this is factually correct, but I remember feeling or thinking that there'd only been one other person who had successfully completed a PhD at that centre at the time that I started. And it may have been that there were a handful of others that I don't know about, but it was a very small number. Like, we kind of, you know, in the nicest possible way, didn't know what we were doing. You know, there wasn't this kind of formal model that everybody had to kind of stick with there was you know it was very open and so we were kind of determining as collectively as we all went along doing these projects we were kind of determining what practice research at PhD level looked like and I think perhaps now it's become a little bit more you know there are more models to rely on there's more examples to look at and perhaps more restrictions in some ways about how these things have to happen but I felt very much as though it was all open and it was kind of up to me to decide what it was going to be um and I loved that I don't I don't know whether it would suit everybody <laughs> quite the same but I loved it and it was this great you know great opportunity to do that the thing that and again perhaps we'll talk about it later but the thing that that the, the negative of that was that when I came out of the PhD I kind of wasn't really prepared I suppose for what a life post PhD might look like it was this incredibly blessed space and then everything from that point on was perhaps not so blessed. So bit so of a disappointment. Kind of terms with, in a way. Sorry. Bit of a disappointment. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But yeah, it, it was fantastic. So I did a lot of, as I say, really experimental little projects. You know, I, I knew that... So the methodological question was the kind of driver of the PhD. The thing I wanted to know was what was it, what would it be like as an ethnomusicologist to make art as my way of researching? That was what I wanted to do. But I needed a kind of a test ground for that. I needed a topic to focus on. And I, and I picked folk as my incredibly long dissertation you know, thesis title showed. It was, it was going to be about folk in the Northwest because that's where I lived and that's what I was doing. And I wanted to kind of really explore what folk meant in a kind of deeper way, I suppose, than, you know, it was a, it was that thing of if I read all the books about what folk was, I would get a very particular understanding of what that was. But I wanted to kind of look beyond that and sort of, yeah. I think the things I ended up exploring as part of this inquiry into folk were far more expansive and non-standard and unusual. And, you know, because I wasn't only using desk-based or, you know, those kinds of more conventional methods. 
Um, it ended up being what I now would call a somewhat socially engaged approach. You know, so it was kind of combining ethnography and making some kind of art mm. you know, project um, as what my practice was. Can you say a bit more about that link that you see between your experience and knowledge of ethnography and your developing art practice? Because I feel like the ethnography is also, you know, you could say a practice research. Oh gosh, yeah, practice I mean, research. So how, <laughs> yeah, no. how, where does it, where does the art, I guess, come in or, or disrupt or kind of relate to that ethnographic approach to research? No, it's a really, really good point. Um, so yeah, I think something that I became aware of really early on was that ethnomusicology, in particular, perhaps, is already a practice-led discipline you know without having to do anything much it's already practice-led many ethnomusicologists play music as a research method you know and obviously say ethnography in its own right you know it is very much a practice I think so I think that the, the term the terminology that I end up using more and I still do was artistic research as opposed to practice research I find practice research very broad and especially I think now it's come to mean such a wide array of different things and yet also somehow very specific, and it just doesn't quite fit the way I see what I'm doing. But artistic research does, and, I, and artistic research, as far as I kind of understood it or continue to understand it, kind of stood in contrast to arts-based methods or arts-based research, which seemed to be more about using art as a kind of uh, way to illustrate theory. You know, it's, it was, you know, kind of, I'm going to use, I don't know, embroidery to disseminate the knowledge of my project that I've already maybe done the research elsewhere in, in a conventional way but the, the art becomes part of the kind of showcasing it for you know, for other people whereas artistic research seemed to be more about transformation and it seemed to be about you know what would it mean to explore this from the perspective of an artist what would it be to you know in, in, integrate the art making into the core of it you know, the, the actual research part not just the dissemination of it mm-hmm. um in terms of ethnography and how I kind of brought art into it, I think, I mean, I always explain it in this really lazy way. And my really lazy way of explaining it was that I was wanted to get involved in a, there was a particular community of performers that I was really interested in. And I wanted to do some work with. And it was quite a closed community, quite a private community. And I found it a real struggle to... Um, to just to get access, you know, to, to get in touch with people and to kind of convince them to let me come and be part of what they were doing as an ethnographer. So if, when I went in and kind of went, hello, I'm a, an ethnographer, I'm a researcher, you know, I want to learn about your community and I want to do this stuff, you know, the doors were shutting and people were very kind of, you know, I think rightfully in lots of ways, you know, unsure what I was about and didn't really want to get involved. But when I set up more from a kind of an artist perspective, interested in the art that they were making and kind of wanted to do something more collaborative around their practice and and bringing our practices together I found it was a much easier kind of sell and again that sounds really instrumental like I just did it you know to get in there but but it it really did feel like just in terms of actually making those connections it, it felt a much stronger way for me at that time to do it and also that the kind of outcomes felt more shared and more yeah collaborative than perhaps if I had gone in as an ethnographer and done this project but then the product that I would come away with would be something that I would author alone and I would get the credit for and it would be put into a journal that perhaps the people in this community would never see and never read and wouldn't really mean anything going in to do a collaborative art project seemed to be something where we both would gain something and could both Mm -hmm. feel a sense of ownership 
that sounds really utopian and I know it's not really like that and there's definitely many times where my authorship you know is still the thing that comes first and and that you know it's not great and I don't I've not resolved it fully but um but I think there are possibilities within collaborative art making or collaborative social practice that that offered something at that time that that I didn't think I'd been taught in my kind of standard Mm -hmm. ethnography 101 you know get your clipboard out get your recorder put it in someone's face and ask them lots of questions you know just there was just something more than that but also I really I I I wrote a bit about in in the the dissertation about thinking through making this Mm. idea that kind of because I suppose for me as someone without an art practice and although I would say now perhaps it's still the same with an art practice but I at that time I didn't have one it felt like a to be considering these questions not just through kind of direct study of an object or direct conversation with to be kind of thinking that through making things through drawing through just anything else really again I felt it kind of gave me a more expanded perspective on those things somehow these connections would start happening that I I don't believe I would have made if I hadn't been making art at the same time so it, it again, sounds instrumentalist and perhaps was, but it, it really did feel like this way of turning this question over and over in my hands, almost literally, and and, and, and coming up with something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still, I think, what I find the most interesting about, about artistic research. Can I move as well on to the post-PhD life for Lucy, where you finished in 2014? Can you give us a bit of a chronology of what happened, when and why, <laughs> if you dare? Ah, <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, it sounds, I feel really, it's incredible to think that it was 2014, because it's such a long time ago. And I know that that people feel as though PhD study kind of ages really fast. I came to the end of my PhD programme without really any sense of what I wanted to do next, not a clue. Um, knew that I had to make some money, had to work, that wasn't like, it wasn't even a question. And so I just started randomly applying for anything that I thought I was semi-qualified for so I, I applied for work in a high street beauty shop um uh framing the place that did kind of framing of artworks and I also on um, somebody sent me a, a job application for a, a research associate post at Manchester Met in the Centre for Enterprise, which was obviously wildly different from what I actually, you know, had studied. And they just sent me, it's kind of going, oh, this is this sounds like something you could do. And I was like, yeah, fine. And I just wh- whipped off a, an application for it, got the job, totally amazed, like, wow, you know, it's the most money that I'd ever seen in my life and that anyone in my family had ever earned. So it was like, wow, this is this is amazing. Um, so I did, I did a year, maybe 18 months of research associate uh work at the center for enterprise at manchester met and i always kind of say this to people because well two things i would say one was that like even though it wasn't in my field and it wasn't i still learned a lot from it and i felt like it was i felt like i i really needed some space after my phd to kind of get my head around what what it was going to be next you know I, I like i say i think maybe people are more prepared now than i was for what comes next i think there's more support but for me i just had this incredible four years of kind of free form doing whatever i liked and kind of just you know incredible and, and i had no idea what what it would mean to be an academic no idea what even lect- I'd not, i hadn't even done guest lecturing i'd done nothing you know i'd just been this strange entity and so yeah it was fantastic to have 18 months kind of in an academic role you know I had an affiliation I had somewhere to be the work you know it was was 
interesting but there was time within the schedule to kind of develop some of my own interests as well and there was I was encouraged to do that which was really lovely even when it was slightly kind of tangential to what my actual role was so I think it was a great kind of training ground for me and it meant that I during that time I published my first articles I did my first bits of lecturing you know trying to work out kind of what my what my role was going to be you know in the future and the other thing I but the other thing I was so I don't, so I don't think it's selling out I think if you have to get a job and it's not in your field I think it's nothing wrong with that and you you know you can still learn a huge amount from it even if it's not but at the same time I also knew of people who didn't get a job straight away and took a little bit of time out after their PhD and I think that was really beneficial too to have just a bit of space mm-hmm. and I think they kind of perhaps were they used that time to work out, you know, where they would be best placed to go to next and didn't apply mm. in the scattergun way that I did. So I think it depends on people's personal situation, kind of how urgently you need the money. But I think if you can take a little bit of, of break, I think it's really maybe very helpful. Um, but yeah, so I did 18 months at the business school and then I applied for another job at University of Sheffield, which was another short term contract, but it was more in my field. So it was uh, the Digital Folk Project, which was an AHRC project about how people in the folk arts were using digital technologies. And that was a year's, maybe 18 months contract. Basically, I did a whole string of short term academic contracts and I did that for seven years. Um, and it basically every every year or so I had to you know, I got I got fired and had to apply again for another role and it was really hard like I think there was this I think there's lots of great privileges about being in academia even in a kind of somewhat precarious way and I was really I I don't know whether I I wonder whether now that I'm because I'm no longer in that um I, I now kind of wonder whether I ever really wanted to be an academic or whether it was that I didn't really know what else there was that I could use my education training for and would pay enough money like I I just I don't know what the other options I mean I yeah I I found my own weird niche now that's that's slightly different but but I think it was partly it was just that thing of I I just truly don't know what else I would do so I kept on applying for these jobs and you know there's a lot of rejection and there's a lot of I did apply I didn't even get I tried to apply for my own postdoc to do my own work but I think the stuff that I do is too weird so it never really got anywhere and um yeah it was challenging I you know I could talk more about it but I don't know if it's relevant here the other thing I would say is none of the roles that I had in academia at that time were practice led not one um it was really difficult or I would say you know I just didn't find any job adverts applications for roles that required a practice led approach and it seemed to me that I thought that my practice-led work, which I continued to do all through that time, I was always plugging away at my, I always had this thing of like, there's my work and there's the work I do for other people. And my work was practice, practice artistic research, whatever. Uh, and there was the stuff I did for other people that wasn't. But I always felt like when I was trying to sell myself to, you know, to a new job, those practice-led things were the things that made me stand out. They were like the icing on the cake. They go, oh, wow, how cool you had an exhibition. Oh, that's really great. You did that bit of funded work with X community or you've got this thing going. They, it was always that. But then once I once I was in role, it kind of wasn't what they wanted. So it felt like a strange, you know. Are you able to say a bit more about that? Like, what? Why do you think that was that there wasn't an uh, an acknowledgement or embracing of your approach in the projects? Was it because they were already set up and you were like coming in at? A, like, I don't know. Like, is there? I know it's hard to sort of pinpoint. No, uh, yeah, why, but what, I think what's going on there. I think they were established projects, you know, I, I 
it was always, you know, the funding was already there. They'd got a project and they'd, they'd budgeted in for our postdoc and they already knew what that postdoc was going to do. And it had already been decided. And so I was, you know, I was just there to kind of deliver on that. My very final um, contract, which I finished at the end of last year, did have a practice led element to it. Um but again, I wouldn't say that it necessarily it wasn't an artistic research project. So it, it wasn't it wasn't using my methodology, I suppose. It was using more of an arts based methods approach, I would say. Um, I, I don't know. I think that funders are quite conservative. And I think that there's a lot of lip service paid to the value of practice. But real kind of practice, what I consider to be real practice research, where you don't know at the outset what, the, what it's going to be like at the end mm. is too is too uncertain. And I think I think people I think you know anyone who's kind of in that environment probably finds that too difficult to handle so and it also yeah. is that is there a culture with the short-term postdoc cult- culture of short-term contracts that unless you are setting up that project from the get-go mm-hmm. in terms of its aims its its questions its methodologies mm-hmm. and if that person isn't hasn't got experience or isn't interested or doesn't know about practice based methodologies yeah. and approaches then it's unlikely they'll build that into the research design and therefore funding approaches yeah absolutely anyway. so is it is it are we inevitably going to be seeing this repeat this pattern repeat if people aren't in in those posts developing that funding from the beginning then there's then you're always going to be disappointed <laughs> again with, the, with yeah. not you know not necessarily finding a role for practice unless Hmm. As I say, there's that interest from the. I mean, it, it, I'm trying to think because I because I don't want to kind of speak again, you know, speak about things I don't know about. I I didn't apply for jobs in art, I suppose. So I don't know what it was like if I'd had a kind of more straightforward background as an artist and I did practice research PhD and then I went into kind of I don't know I don't know how that would have worked. Mm-hmm. I was always applying, I suppose, for roles more in in the social sciences, I guess. Um, and I think that the social sciences in particular have a view of practice research, which is quite different from the one that I grew up with <laughs> within my PhD. But I found that, I, you know, obviously you kind of, it's a kind of, it's a hustle. You know, I think being a, being a precarious academic, going from contract to contract is a hustle. And you're always having to try and work out how to sell yourself the next time. And so I guess when I went to these interviews, I I downplayed, you know, if if, if the role said, we want someone to be an ethnographic researcher that I'm going to downplay what my actual approach is going to be. I might hope that I can squeeze it in on the side while, when I've actually got the job. But at the time, you, you try and be what they want you to be, I think. Well, that's, I guess, what I did. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, and I'm not sure that's... I don't think I'd ever... I've never... I've not really ever had a job where even once it was explained, the people I was working with kind of went, wow, yeah, I get it. That sounds great. You go ahead and do that. Like, I just don't think people outside of practice research within art really fully appreciate what it is and maybe don't feel quite safe with it because it, it just sounds very I mean even ethnography is one of those terms that I can think what I under, what I trained in as an ethnographer is quite different from a lot of social scientists view of, of ethnography and it's funny how these terms get used very confidently by different people who have very wildly different you know it's, it's very different how they actually and neither one is necessarily wrong but if you use if you're both using that term, but you have these totally different perspectives on it, then you're actually not talking about the same thing at all. And I think that's for me where practice is that practice research is at. I think I think people often have an idea of what it is, but but it's not necessarily the reality of it. And so you're always talking across purposes. 
I definitely can feel that <laughs> myself at times. Thank you um, for putting, putting that so articulately. Um, uh, the And I guess what this podcast is trying to do as well is to kind of explore those cross purposes a bit in a bit more detail and get to some of the yeah. nitty gritty aspects. Um, Lucy, I don't know how successful it'll be, but um, but Lucy, you're, you you you've moved on. You've just you've got off that that treadmill of applying for short term contracts. Um, can you tell us? And you've you've written publicly about this as well on your Twitter feed. Um, thank you very much. Um, I applaud you for that. Could you tell us a bit more about that decision and where you're at now? Yeah. So the decision was more one of kind of I can't think what the word is, but but you're giving up. <laughs> I, I, I came to the end my my last um, academic contract finished at the end of last year and I it was a part-time contract anyway so I was working three days a week there and I had another job going at the same time which I took on initially as a kind of favor to my old PhD supervisor and they just needed someone to come in and finish up a KTP that was going at an arts organization called Axis and so I did two I was doing two days a week there to finish off the project and it kept on getting extended which was really great but I was running these two roles in parallel and I'd never done that before so I'd been lucky enough I guess up until the last phase that I'd always been in full-time work within academia and there was just it, you know, it was the pandemic and the amount, the challenge that it was to balance two quite demanding semi-academic, one one semi-academic, one very academic job was just immense. And I was getting up at, you know, 4.30 in the morning quite often so that I could work, you know, even, even on a day that I wasn't working for the university, I was getting up early so that I could do some work for, because there was just so much that was required. And at the same time trying to apply for jobs and kind of getting knocked back and it was just a I just couldn't do it anymore it felt really awful and so when I knew that my so my I was really lucky that my access job um once the KTP finished they still saw value in what I was bringing to the organization which was lovely and said that I could you know that they'd keep me on as a as a permanent worker which is the first permanent job I've ever had and it was fantastic you know it's three days a week but it was just a weight lifted off my mind to suddenly you know not have to be always worrying because I think that that is one of the the most pernicious things about these short-term contracts is that from day one you always know that you're out the door within 12 months 18 months two years you know however long however long it is and I think it also opens you up to the, the risk of massive overwork and exploitation because you're trying to persuade that university that you are worth them keeping you know you want them to keep you on and so any bit of work any bit of teaching because oh, I was teaching too during so I had three jobs with the teaching and you know because because I was always there was always that little promise of like well maybe if you do this then the, the powers that be will think you're worth keeping on and it never happened you know and, and yeah so it was just lovely to get a permanent job anywhere and it was great that it was at Axis because it's a lovely lovely job and yeah and I just once my my contract finished I just didn't apply for any others it was a kind of giving in and and yeah and I and I haven't looked at any academic jobs since and my my plan was just that you know yeah I do my three days a week um for Axis which just about keeps the rent paid and all of that stuff and you know I have been building up some consultancy work as an artist and and a researcher and kind of a mix of different things and I just I want to give that a go like I just want to allow myself to have some time to actually pursue my own stuff because all the time that I was working in academia for other people my stuff was sidelined you know enormously 
you know, I was, and, and the work that I did wasn't my work. So I wanted to give my work a chance and you know, maybe bring some of the stuff that I'd learned over the few years to putting it out there. And that's what I'm doing now. So I have three days a week where I'm a social producer for Axis and I'm heading up um, their provision for socially engaged artists, which is just lovely because, you know, I still, I, I consider myself to have a kind of mostly social art practice and I, I, I love you know working with social artists and it's been really great to um to, to have that role something I'm leading on that I'm really proud of is the social art library which is a kind of online artist-led archive of socially engaged art projects and it's a you know it's a repository of all kinds of stuff around socially engaged art mostly at this at this moment it's people send us their projects and we showcase them um and they can be searched so you can just find out what's going on because we know that social art suffers from a real lack of visibility and these projects kind of happen and we know they're great but once they're over there's maybe not very much left of them and we think there's some amazing learnings from that so it's, it's really nice to be able to kind of bring them together and make them searchable and learnings from the searchable and also it's a resource for people who want to make things happen in their communities so there's going to be other kinds of resource that you know that, that hopefully are, are useful and interesting to anyone who you know, he's interesting, in, interested in social justice or making things, you know, affecting changes of any kind within their within their communities. Um, so I'm absolutely loving working on that. We've got quite a number of exciting things going on in that part of the work. And then the other, you know, the other days of the week, I'm being an artist. And oh my gosh, you know, having gone from someone who thought I will never ever want to be an artist, I'm always going to be a, a researcher. I, I'm really embracing this idea of being an artist now. And I've had I've got a couple of really nice projects going on. Um, I've got an exhibition that's just just got launched last week at Shropshire Art Gallery um, for a project called Plough Witches, which is a, a re- reimagination of the traditional mummers play with an all-female and non-binary cast. Um, got a bunch of stuff going on. And I'm just, yeah, loving. It feels a little bit like returning to the good old days of doing the practice PhD, um, just without that kind of institutional framework, I guess. But that's really nice. That is amazing and inspiring. Thank you, Lucy. Um, I just wanted to finish with the, just to, to end really on that, on the contemporary moment of what you're doing with the, you know, those two days of of being an artist. Can you just expand a little bit on how you conceptualise that, if you still feel you're, you are both researcher artist in one and how that is, how you manage that, again, in a kind of field that doesn't necessarily acknowledge and um, I'm generalising massively, but doesn't necessarily in, uh, acknowledge or even care about the research bit, <laughs> and is more interested in the artist bit or art bit. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, that? it's a totally good point, and I don't have a kind of. It's something I think about such a lot. You wouldn't believe. Um, I definitely still view myself as an artistic researcher. The way that I would sell myself in different situations, I, I don't necessarily know whether I would always use that term. I might, I might not. Um, but I definitely see research as being an important part of what what I do. I think it it almost feels like it's kind of the blueprint of because of that's where I developed my practice. You know, I didn't have any practice other than being a researcher, and then the the practice grew from that research. So I, I would find it really hard, I think, to imagine what my practice would look like without it. I've, I've there's areas of things I, I do the odd kind of bits of illustration and painting and I kind of sometimes think well maybe that's not strictly research or or that my research isn't about the painting you know, the kind of the material inquiry I'm, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not researching as a painter I suppose but I think everything that I do as an artist is informed by some element of 
a research problem or question, I'm still fully preoccupied by folk and what its role is in the 21st century and kind of what can be done with it because I think it's one of those terms that's really misunderstood and I think it has a far greater radical potential than it's kind of given credit for because it's become associated with a particular set of aesthetics and practices and I think that's really limiting so even I guess when I'm doing something quite outside of a kind of um, research you know I, I everything is kind of towards pushing that research informed agenda mm-hmm. I guess so I just wondered as well in terms of the f- sort of um for want of a better word sort of publishing forums don't mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mean like the peer-reviewed journal se- sec- uh, sector but um how to do you do you feel like is that still important to you do you see like publishing you see people understanding and reading and and kind of getting your work as as um valid research whether it's even if it's more of a kind of artistic form it's taking whatever is that relevant or to you still yeah I I, so I feel like a bit of a fraud because I I find it really hard to conceive of what I am without any consideration of what context it sits within I, I don't know if that makes sense but just that sort of I feel like I have this bunch of skills this bunch of things that I can do and I try to pick the right tool for any given you know problem and so I think there are certain things that are really challenging to communicate without text and I you know although I started out kind of not liking to write I've really built up a practice as a writer in 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 its own right and I think yeah writing is still something that's important to me and I and I I feel as though for me at least it's one of the tests of whether my artistic research works is not so much whether somebody looks at the art and kind of goes, wow, I now understand so much about this research problem. It's more whether through making my art, I'm learning something that maybe can contribute to discourse, you know, in the field that I actually am interested in, which is still, I guess, folklore and ethnomusicology. We, I was, I'm part of a peer learning group um, for artists and they, they invite uh, guest speakers every week to talk about their practice and it's super, super interesting. And one of the questions that, um, that gets asked most weeks is what books uh, you know, inspire you? What books kind of inform your practice? And I've raised it a couple of, well, I've raised it in the group because it's something that I, I, I still feel weird about, this thing of like, if we believe, as, as I, I do, I think, that the practice research is this way of generating knowledge and, and you know, new knowledge in the world, why are we not asking what projects, what artworks, in, you know, and I don't mean inspire you in like, oh, I, I really like Van Gogh, but like, which projects do you think are really contributing something new to discourse you know, that, that you can draw on in your own work? And, I, and whether that is in the art or in the writing about that art, I still have this concern that, that we, we still as artists sometimes give away our power or kind of or kind of still rely on the writers to kind of distill or tell us what what's kind of interesting and, and I, I feel like art should be doing that too mm. so I, I definitely want to be an artist who creates theory and, and, mm. if, and if that's through writing then then so be it absolutely um, and I think also through what we can learn from practice in terms of methodolo- methodologies and ways of working and, and doing so something I'm really interested in talking to people about, particularly um, doctoral students, is that there's a there's a assumption, and this is fine, that we do a literature review as part of our research. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also encourage 
um, students to write practice reviews as well, so that it should be as as fundamental and as, as kind of important in the yeah. in the whole thing is that you're also reviewing practice that inspires you, that that you relate to, that you kind of are drawing from, because you will not be the first person to have done this in this way or with or thought about these ideas. Yeah. So yes, we've got the literature that we're we're kind of developing critical friends through that through a re- through our reading, but also through our experience of other people's work. I think that's fantastic. I, 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 yeah, that's great. I think I think um, I'd love to see more of that happening because I, I, yeah, I think I think it is really important. I think mm. I think we have to have more faith, I guess, in in practice, in the ability of practice yeah. to do that. Especially you know, if 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 we believe that 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 practice is research, which you know that is the kind of that is, I guess, the, the goal of practice yeah. research. Then then we have to use it as research too. We have to actually rely on it. We have to actually you know cite it and and make use yeah. of it within our within our work whatever that looks like I think yeah yeah brilliant well we've I think we've we've reached our 40 minute moment (laughs) so I'm gonna say goodbye Lucy thank you so so much for being part of this podcast series and um yeah and and we'll put the links of things that you've mentioned in the show notes as well so people can follow those up yeah that'd be great um thank you thank you so much thank you Thank you for listening to the Corkscrew podcast brought to you by Birkbeck University of London. If you'd like to join the conversation, visit our website in the show notes and sign up to our email list.